0: Hello, and thank you for joining Haaretz Weekly. With you in studio, Amir Tibon. Later on today's episode, we'll hear about the vanishing of Christian communities from across the Middle East, including right next to us in the Gaza Strip. But before that... Israel discovered its first case of the Omicron variant, the government adopted a controversial decision. It gave the Shin Bet, Israel's internal security agency, the permission to track the movements and communications of those who have been identified as carrying the variant. This decision led to widespread criticism and was eventually renounced after a few days. With us today in studio to discuss the decision itself, the background that preceded it, and why eventually it was canceled, is senior Haaretz journalist and editor, Noah Landau. Hi, Emil. Hi, Noah. Great to have you on the podcast. It's great to be here. And Noah, you wrote quite a scathing op-ed about this decision last week, before it was canceled, criticizing, first of all, the government for using this tool, which we'll explain to our listeners in a minute what exactly it is, and specifically the left-wing elements within the government for going along with it. Why are you so opposed to the Shin Bet tracking the movements of the relatively small, at least it looked back then, population of people here in Israel who have the Omicron variant?
1: Well, first of all, it's important to understand that these tools that the Shin Bet has are not designed for civilian affairs. Uh, These are tools that are usually made for combating terrorism. And because of that, of course, they're, uh, you know, flirting on the edge of democratic tools. They've um, been used so, for a
0: while in the occupied territories against yes, Palestinians. Yes, of
1: course. Of course uh, when it has to do, you know, with security, and also uh, something that our listeners should know uh, is that uh, this tool is heavily censored. So we can't really say, you know, uh, freely what exactly it does. But it is important to understand that this tool doesn't track those with a positive uh, test. It tracks all those people that they were in contact with. So in order to know, usually. There is uh, an investigation that goes on that uh, when someone gets a positive result, uh, the authorities would ask him, uh, you know, who were you in contact with? Where did you go in the last uh, maybe week or two weeks or so uh, to kind of track and alert those people who were in contact with so that So they can go person. and get a
0: test and see that they are yes, exactly. hopefully not carriers also of the variant.
1: Exactly. And most people, most people, apparently around 90%, they cooperate with that because they want to alert people that they were in contact with. Uh, This tool is supposed to track those people for those who do not share who they met with or people who don't know they were in contact uh, with those who have uh, the virus. Basically,
0: I think what we can say is that it's built on the capacity to follow their phones, right? Not
1: only, not only. So yes, most Israelis think that uh, this is about, you know, tracking phones uh, that were uh, around the phone of the person uh, who is sick, but actually, it has other capacities. So, for example, credit cards, cameras on the streets, in stores, uh, smart watches, maybe. So this tool is basically this huge uh, database, uh, a big data system, basically, that its algorithms can, you know, um, you, can, you can ask the system a question about a specific person who was he in touch with in the last two weeks. And then it brings in all the data.
0: When, so when we this were growing up, tracking. you had this only in movies. Today, it's the movie we live in.
1: Exactly. So so this is basically spying, you know. This is, you know, really taking in all, all your most, you know, private information about where were you and with who and what time. And, you know, gathering all this information about you specifically, the person who got sick. For example, you as a journalist, now uh, you have the new variant, okay? And now the Shin Bet will track all your sources that you've Everybody been in touch with physically, with, with. you know. Yes, corresponded Um, with. Exactly. So that's a big question. And by the way, Israel's Supreme Court did notice that there is a problem with journalists, for example, tracking journalist sources for uh, this kind of purpose.
0: Now, Now, the tool, as you call it, was first used by the previous Israeli government, the one led by Benjamin Netanyahu, which was in power when COVID first started and took this decision. And back then there was a very strong opposition to it.
1: Right. So you asked me before, why am I opposing it? But actually, it was the left that opposed it uh, or the opposition during Netanyahu's term. Yes. Now health minister, Nitzan Horowitz, uh, head of Meretz party, was really against it during Netanyahu's but term. It
0: infringes he infringes on civil rights.
1: Exactly. He said that this is something that uh, dictatorships use. Uh, and now suddenly when he's the health minister <laughs> for a second there, he thought, oh, maybe it's not that bad, you know, to use it anyways. But as you said, you know, in the beginning, uh, they changed their minds and they actually canceled it.
0: They did uh, after a few days. And I want to focus on on what happened in those few days in between, because as you said, Nitzan the health minister, he was one of, I think, the most prominent people who really switched their mind on this. And one of the excuses that he gave was the magnitude. Basically, he said under the previous government, this was used to track or use the less polite word, spy on hundreds and eventually thousands of people were, in you know, in this case, it's just a few individuals because the variant is not spreading so much. What do you think about this explanation that he gave?
1: Well, basically, the, the question of proportionality is something that we see uh, many times in liberal democracies. Uh, almost every step that is problematic uh, from a liberal democratic point of view, such as Uh, Churcher, for example, um, is always explained in the means of proportionality, right? Because we need to balance between democracy and security. And usually, proportionality is the way that it's being done. So here as well, Nitzan Horvitz said, well, maybe I was against it before. But now, I think that because it's a very small number of people, etc., which, by the way, is not true because they actually stopped it because they saw it's not such a small number. You know, that's the problem with the virus that it does expand and it doesn't stay, you know, a small number. And by the way, it was also discovered during appeals in courts against this practice that it's actually not that effective because the virus spreads so fast among such big number of people, then it's not effective anymore very quickly.
0: Yeah, I remember there were many stories about people who, based on the Shin Bet information, were asked to quarantine because they supposedly had been exposed to someone carrying the virus. And it turned out that while this was happening, they were driving their car with the windows closed and just passed. By that person, or maybe not even in the area, and there was some kind of signal, so that's exactly uh, the problem.
1: For example, neighbors okay, there's a wall between you guys, and then but But if someone has exactly, but if someone has the virus, then the other has to quarantine, then it's not really effective. Um, and also, I think the Shinbet itself does not want to do it, and they explain it by saying that they don't want you know public trust
0: To to erode.
1: Yes, because uh, you know, because people have criticism about this, uh, and also I think they also don't want this tool to be that public because then people see how much it actually doesn't work many times mm-hmm. then it could put into question and actually erode the trust you know of the public uh, uh, in how they actually combat terrorism as well uh, because maybe that's how you know if this is how they arrest palestinians based on that you know system that does these mistakes maybe you know it puts a question mark on other things
0: yeah this relates to another article you wrote last month which i'm not sure actually if we carried in english but it was a very good one uh, about in general the question of trusting the intelligence and and security officials and you mentioned one case when there was a terror investigation that turned out to be completely wrong and identified the completely wrong suspects, and yet they did serve a lot of time in uh, detainment until it was solved. So maybe you're saying if Israelis saw that this is how it works with COVID, they would have more question marks also around the issues of terrorism and public security.
1: Definitely, definitely. Israelis have very high percentages of trust in security. uh, I think the most trusted
0: institutions basically. Yes, usually
1: it's the IDF, the Mossad, and the Shin Bet. Uh, But then you see the police is is very, very low Percentages of trust and why is that? Because every citizen has, you know, some kind of a connection to the police. They see how the police, you know, acts uh, a- as civilians, but they never—they're not really exposed to how the other bodies sure. um, actually, you know, do the day-to-day job, except for the IDF, which is, I think, a different story because uh, a lot of Israelis have to serve in the IDF. And and then a, you a, know, questioning the IDF is actually questioning themselves and, and their, their family, family and friends. exactly. Yes, yeah. but regarding Mossad. Than Shin Bet, the fact that we don't know a lot about these tools is part is part of the reason that there's such a high percentages of trust. So they themselves, the Shin Bet, is actually saying now, leave us out of it because we don't want our methods exposed and we don't want the trust
0: to Now this connects to a broader issue here in Israel of how the previous government and to some degree also this one has dealt with other questions related to COVID and transparency. And you've been very active on the issue of the protocols, as we call it, of the COVID discussions in the previous government. Can you Elaborate a bit to our listeners what this story is about.
1: Yes, of course. So because Israel is such a strong security ethos, usually um, most deliberations in the government and also uh, cabinet uh, uh, for security are uh, strictly secret. and th- For, for this decades, is, basically, 40, th- oh, 50 years. It's, it has it's, it's been this way since the beginning. And, you know, it makes sense. And this is what actually the law says when this is about, you know, issues where you have an enemy who could theoretically you know listen and discover the secrets and then you know it's a problem for security yes,
0: some protocols from the six-day si- war and uh, are still sealed to this day
1: yes definitely so israel is really big on uh, you know hiding all um, government deliberations because of that you know aspect because when it comes to security and foreign affairs you don't want the other side or the enemy to to, to listen or know the secrets but when you talk about the virus That's actually not, you know, the virus doesn't have ears. He's not listening to our secrets. They're not, you know, the virus will not, you know, discover our secrets of how we want to handle it. And then this whole concept of how, you know, to treat a a civil emergency with the tools that we have is becoming very complicated because actually in a pandemic, you want you know, more transparency because you want more trust and you want people to actually want the public to engage and trust, you know, what the government is doing. And secretiveness is actually harming this. So the whole concept of how to treat an emergency in Israel, which is not, you know, a security issue, we don't really have the right tools for that. So, yes, the government has been hiding uh, all the protocols from their deliberations on how to treat the virus.
0: And these are questions that impacted people's lives. It's the questions of whether or not to have a national lockdown, what to do about the schools, how to begin administering vaccines and who to deliver them to and when, what to do about the airport, who should be able to enter the country and who shouldn't, when it comes to the economy, which sectors should remain open, which should be closed. And all of these government deliberations on issues that really impacted every Israeli citizen in the last almost two years until now are still under wraps.
1: Right. And, uh, you know, the reason for it is not that they, they don't actually claim that for this issue it's a problem to have more transparency, but they just don't want it to be presented, you know, to the, for the future. Uh, they don't want this, you know, to uh, become uh, something that happens with other issues. And then well. people
0: will say, wait a second, and why can we learn about the COVID deliberations and we can't see documents from the first Lebanon war in 1982, which is going to be 40 years, <laughs> right. you know, in, in a few months from now?
1: Right. They also claim in the government government that when a discussion is public, then there's more populism, allegedly. I mean, I can tell you as someone who covered these discussions that there's populism anyways, because everyone leaks, you know, whatever they want to. And that's exactly the problem. Everyone leaks what they want to, but we can never see the full objective picture of who said what exactly.
0: Noah Landau, thank you very much. And I encourage everyone who is interested in this issue to read uh, Noah's great op-ed from last week and keep following our coverage on Haaretz.com. Thank you, Amir. After the break... A conversation with journalist and author Janine Di Giovanni about her new book, The Vanishing, which documents the decline of Christian communities across the Middle East. We are weeks away from Christmas. And usually, here in Israel, around this time of the year, there is an influx of tourists coming to visit the Holy Christian sites all over the country. This year, because of COVID, we're not sure that's going to happen, but there is actually an even bigger story happening right now all over the Middle East related to what one author has called the vanishing of Christianity from the region. Uh, We had a great story about this in Haaretz almost two weeks ago by Rich Tenorio. And today we have with us as a guest of the podcast, Janine Di Giovanni, author of the book, The Vanishing, which details the huge changes happening with Christian communities all over the Middle East. Janine, thank you very much for being with us.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
0: First of all, in the broadest terms possible, what is this vanishing that you describe in the book? What is happening on the ground, whether it's in the Palestinian society, because I I think you write about also Gaza in the book, but also in other parts of the Middle East. What is happening with the Christian communities?
2: Yes. Well, basically, uh, I've been working in the Middle East for many, many years. And around the time of Saddam Hussein, so in the early 2000s, I began traveling to regions near Mosul in northern Iraq to work and to live and to, to document the lives of the Iraqi Christians there. Essentially, they're, they're ancient, ancient people. They're people whose roots stretch back to 2,000 years. Really, um, the, since the origins
0: the, of Christianity.
2: Since the origins of Christianity. And since that time, if we're just talking about Iraq, for instance, the numbers of these people are, are dwindling rapidly. So, for instance, at the time of the last census in Iraq, There were about half a million Christians. Now, it's it's difficult to get figures because of the Islamic State and what happened in 2014. But we reckon there's about less than 150,000. Same thing happening in Syria, where geopolitical reasons and also because of the terrible war, Christians are either fleeing or they're afraid of Iranian-backed militias or Turkish airstrikes. In Egypt, the cops there face an entirely different set of challenges, but they are equally discriminated and persecuted. There are laws within the Egyptian constitution that prohibit them from holding office in either high-ranking government or army positions. And then finally, I focus in my book on the Christians of Gaza, who are now numbered about 800. And they are in the extremely difficult position of being sandwiched between Hamas, who, of course, are at odds with the PA in Ramallah, and the Israeli border closures and subjugation. So there is this terrible situation where these Christians are faced with this incredibly painful decision to leave their ancestral land or to stay and to be persecuted, and in some cases, as with the Islamic State, to be eradicated entirely.
0: Well, i have so many questions and i think the first one i want to ask <laughs> do you see a, a thread that connects these four different communities in four different corners of the middle east that all of them are declining
2: well it's interesting you know people say why didn't you look at jordan why didn't you look at lebanon why didn't you look at bahrain i i picked each of these communities for very specific reasons because i felt that they were the the ones that were probably in the most precarious, dangerous situation. In terms of Gaza, I was just absolutely fascinated. I've been working in Gaza since the first Intifada, so 1990. And I I had no idea that they were there, that their numbers were so small, and that they were so tenacious. So really, your question, Amir, the link is their faith. All of these communities, all the time I spent, and I really concentrated for four years on... um, deep field work with these people going back over and over, talking to them, interviewing them. What I found is that their faith was so strong that even in the case of the Islamic State running through the villages near Mosul in 2014, when they were faced with the decision of convert or die, they refused to convert. And many of them were killed. Many of the women were, were sold, were taken away, their land, their farms were destroyed, and yet they clung on to their faith. And I think that one of the things I discovered is that their faith is such a part of their identity. It's who they are. They're Arabs, but they're, they're Arab Christians, and they are linked by this, their, their deep belief, their deep roots to their community, to their land, and they, they want to stay. But aside from the geopolitics and the rise of radical groups, there's also other things. There's climate change. So climate change, as you know, in the Middle East is happening twice as fast as anywhere else. We
0: feel it every day here in the Tel Aviv headquarters of Haaretz.
2: Yeah, yes. And imagine if you're in Iraq, which is um, the UN now is listing as one of the, it's in the top five most vulnerable countries. So there's everything from livelihood is threatened because the great rivers like the Tigris and the Euphrates, people who, who have their livelihood along that, that's threatened. But there's also mass migration and then there's economics. And this is the big issue in Gaza as well, where unemployment among extremely highly educated people is so high. I mean, in the youth in Gaza, it's something near close to 80 percent. And these are people with degrees, they're dentists, they're lawyers, they're doctors, and there just is no work. So these are just the major problems and challenges that these Christians are facing, and yet we need them to stay in their ancestral land because what we don't want is a Middle East that's completely homogenized. We know that the Jews of of Iraq, for instance, who were practically eradicated in the 1950s and the 1970s, were such a huge part of of the Iraqi community that they brought so much richness, cultural and otherwise, and yet they disappeared so we absolutely cannot have this happening to the christians who are just absolutely such an important part and and not just christians i mean all minorities throughout the middle east must be protected and must find a way to stay in in their ancient land the land of the land of their ancestors
0: yeah we hear from time to time stories about uh, leaders or powerful people in some of the arab countries who regret the fact that their countries were basically left without any jewish population and the damage or let's say the potential that was missed and your warning of a similar scenario that is taking shape with the Christian community sometimes in those very same countries.
2: Absolutely. I mean look at the Jewish community of Alexandria in Egypt or the Syrian Jewish community in Aleppo, again the Jews of Baghdad, the incredibly important community there.
0: All the richness um, that it, was lost.
2: Yes, and These are exactly the places that I'm looking at in my book. In Aleppo, I worked a lot there during the Syrian war. I look at the Christian communities, particularly the Armenians, and how many of them, when the city fell in December 2016 to Bashar al-Assad's forces, some of them who had never been to Armenia before, because, of course, they were Syrians, but they were of Armenian heritage, got in their cars and just drove back to Armenia. And so I think we're going to have this kind of migration of people, Christians, really seeking out safe places. During the Trump years here in the U.S., of course, there was the Muslim ban. So that meant that Muslim immigrants, refugees could not come here, but Christians could. And to me, that sent a terrible message. It meant that there were good refugees, i.e. Christians, and bad refugees, the Muslims. But it also meant that it, in a way, drew Christians away from their ancestral lands in a way like how the Jewish agency drew Jews away from Birobidzhan, a very remote part of Russia, um, the former Soviet Union that I once visited, and then left it a kind of hollow place, which had once it had once been the center of Yiddish theater. And so if we take these people away from their land, we're leaving a vacuum. And we're also in a way giving in to what extremist groups want to rid these people, to get them out of the land. That's what ISIS wanted. Daesh wanted. They wanted to get the Christians out. They wanted to get the Yazidis out. They didn't succeed. Today, people are returning to their villages. They're rebuilding their churches. The churches are full. But it's just really a matter of time how long they can remain. And I think they need all the support we can give them our governments, our communities to help them remain. After all, I mean, this is the land. It's the land of the prophets. It's the land of, of Jesus Christ. It's hugely, hugely relevant in terms of history, geopolitics, everything. So that's why that's why I wrote this book with such passion and, and also urgency, a real sense that now they must be protected because it's believed that in a 100 years, in some places like Iraq, they will cease to exist. That the numbers are going down so quickly of their population that they will not be there in a hundred years' time. And that's terrifying, especially if you look at the Jewish communities and what happened to them. And if that's any kind of a precedent, then we really need to act fast and, and to help them.
0: Now, when you talk about action and the support, What do you see, for example, the United States be? You know, what are the options for for the U.S. to get involved here and to try to help preserve these communities?
2: Well, Amir, I mean, one thing that's really important is to have U.S. policy still keeping eyes on, for instance, northeastern Syria. You know, having some kind of presence. I mean, U.S. has does have. There is departments of religious freedom where, you know, reports are endlessly made about discrimination of Christians and and other minorities all over the world, whether it's Afghanistan or North Korea and how people, you know, these people must be protected. But I think it needs to be much more than reports and U.N. documents and and politicians saying things. I think it's actually policy has to be implemented so that they're protected against. Okay, let's look at the Iranian militias in Iraq. That's what people are afraid of now. ISIS was defeated, and I put that in quotes, but the ideology certainly wasn't defeated. That very extreme ideology does want to wipe out Christianity in the region. Finally, I think we need industry. When I go to Gaza and my last trip was there in August, the thing right, that's right after me the more, last war. Yes. And I went to document the damage of the last war and as always, whenever I go to Gaza, my heart is broken because I see people who are so well-educated amongst the best educated people in the Middle East, young people who are tremendously full of potential. I, I, in fact, I have a piece coming out in Vanity Fair in January, which is just about the youth of Gaza. And my view is, why can't we have more industries such as outsourcing in Gaza so that they remain. And 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 now I'm not talking just about Christians, I'm talking about all Gazans in fact. But the the thing is that the 800 Christians in Gaza suffer the the war, the bombardment, the lack of electricity, the everything else that goes along with the punishment of Gaza. They suffer it alongside with the 2 million other Gazans. So, you know, the whole when you look at Gaza You can't just look at the Christians. You have to look at the entire situation there. And the longer we wait, I mean, I've been working in Gaza for 30 years. The last trip, I have never seen it so bad. So Gaza needs to be looked at. It definitely, northeast Syria needs to be looked at carefully. Iraq, the the returning Christian villages need to be reassured that we're watching them. I mean, one amazing thing was his holy father, Pope Francis went there last spring, at the height of COVID, and yeah, I mean that this was a
0: was big headline at the time his visit.
2: I mean this is remarkable. This is an elderly man. He was warned by every advisor not to go. First of all, for the the risk of his security. Second, for COVID. But he went, and he went for a reason. He went to show those people there: you are not alone. We are with you. We've got your back. We're watching. And, you know, I've worked in war zones and humanitarian catastrophes for three decades now. The most important thing people need is to know we're watching. You are not alone. This is not happening in isolation. Um, this is documented. So one of the reasons I wrote the book really was that there would be a, a document, a living document. So people could not say. Well, who were these Christians of Iraq, of Syria, of Gaza, of Egypt? I've never heard anything about them. Well, you have, because there's a book now about it, and and they do exist.
0: And do you see this issue becoming a priority also in terms of the political discourse in Washington? Because you do have right now in the U.S., For example, the very strong evangelical uh, Christian uh, activity that is focused on the Middle East, but more on support for Israel. Is this also becoming a priority?
2: Absolutely. But that's a whole other issue because, of course, as you know, the evangelical Christians are usually linked to President Trump and the extreme right who are in support of the settler movement in Israel. So, in a sense, it almost goes against what you think it should go, um because they are um usually you know these huge mega churches in the deep south or in texas and places like that are far right usually anti abortion anti homosexual anti in my view human rights um, and, and the issue so- of
0: christians in the middle east is less on the radar you're saying
2: Yeah. I mean, in fact, I'm shocked by the ignorance of a lot of the American churches. It's more prevalent, I think. I lived in France for many years, and and in France, there's a big movement amongst the Catholic Church to be aware of our Christian brethren in the Middle East. But by and large, I mean, during this Christmas season, for instance, I think it should be brought up in every church. You know, we should be praying for our For our brothers and sisters who, for instance, in Gaza, now you know this because of the restriction of movement, because they can't get permits, they can't get to Bethlehem. And it's it's hugely important for them at the holidays to be in the birthplace of Christ. So that was one of the big issues of the Gazan community. When I would say to them, you know, what are the biggest challenges facing you? They would say, we can't get permits at Christmas and Easter to go to Bethlehem or even more cruelly, they would be given one, one permit. And that meant one member of the family could go, which is ridiculous. So, I mean, I think things like this have to be looked at carefully and worked on. I think we have to continuously look at ways that we could preserve these communities and, and also document them. You know, it's really important with 800 Christians left in Gaza, it's a tiny number. Gaza had been entirely Christian until yeah, it, the 4th century. It
0: has an amazing Christian history, you know, when you know in the past when Israelis could visit there and uh, and, and when you read about it, so many, you know, monasteries and uh, saints that operated there um and and of course yeah. you see you see it on the famous map of uh, Madaba as a Christian city. So this is quite a turn of events
2: absolutely
0: janine thank you so much for being with us on the podcast and i encourage the readers who are interested to learn more to read the the great article that rich tenorio published about your book the vanishing uh, appeared about two weeks ago and of course to look for the book itself thank you very much
2: thank you amir take care
0: you too and that's it for today's episode thank you to our producer Aaron ehrlich who is back with us this week and of course to you listeners We'll be back again on Friday with another episode of Arts Weekend. Until our next meeting, shalom from Tel Aviv.